This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former Chief Information Officer at the Treasury Department, or should I say recently departed or recently retired? I'm not sure what we're calling you. You know, you're not, I don't think you're old enough to quote unquote retire yet. But Eric, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time and welcome to the program. Jason, thanks so much for having me on. Let's start right at the beginning. Why did you decide to uh, retire or leave Treasury? You were uh, probably, if I look back, one of the, if not the longest serving CIOs at the cabinet level agencies. I had a very good running government. And I think sort of the, the simple answer is after 18 years in the government, 15 years as a senior executive, five years as an agency CIO in a couple different capacities, it's really time to do something different. In a lot of ways, I feel like I sort of achieved maybe the pinnacle of a federal IT career. But when I come in, came to the federal government 18 years ago, I never expected to stay this long. And I do feel like I've been sort of pushing the envelope in terms of being a change agent in the various roles I've had here at DOJ and, and at Treasury. But it, it's time to do something different. So technically, I've retired, but I don't plan to retire per se, sort of looking forward to the flexibility that retirement offers in terms of work, looking at work life differently, maybe look at contributing to the federal mission uh, from a different vantage point. You know, it's really just impossible to sort of underemphasize the importance of technology in the government and really in business, nothing at scale really gets done without it. So I continue to be very motivated by by the mission and we'll look for other ways to to contribute other than that of being uh, a, an agency or department level cio interesting that you talk about that you decided to kind of exit on your own terms if you will you didn't obviously get pushed out we know that <laughs> be clear about that but you also didn't have another job or someone maybe said hey eric here's a here's an opportunity you can't refuse is that a hard decision because sometimes you talk to folks who maybe have been in government for 40 years or 45 years and they feel like okay, it's really time to retire or do something. But as I said, I didn't think, you know, just to be honest, I didn't think you were old enough to retire in, in that sense. So, uh, and, and as you said, you're not fully retiring per se, but was it just that you just felt the time was right, basically? The way I would describe it, as an agency CIO, you're obviously involved with so many different aspects of technology and vendors and what have you. And I wanted to be clearly on the other side of sort of all of the ethics considerations, whether in in reality or in perception, before you know, I, I started looking around at other things. It was very important to me. I think with Fatara and the involvement of an agency CIO in, in, in practically seemingly every uh, IT decision at some way, shape, or form, I just wanted to be real clear that I was on the other side of that. Fortunate enough to have you know, sort of the, the ability to do that and, and take some time and, and, and think it through. Uh, but that's, that was really the driver there. All right. I mean, I think that's a, it's a great driver and, and it's an important understanding of where you are at in your career and where you want to head. So let's talk a little bit about your career. As you mentioned, you were the CIO at Treasury five years, if not the, the longest serving CIO at the cabinet level, one of them. And, and you also previously worked at the Justice Department. I, and when I look back at uh, when I wrote the, the initial story that, of you leaving, 
I look back and said, oh, he had that e-government title. If you remember those days, you, yeah. when, when all of a sudden all these uh, senior executives and folks in the IT world had, had director of e-government or something. So let's just talk about your career a little bit. You came to government when and, and then walk, just walk me through the, some of the highlights. I started with the federal government in 2003 and just, you know, sort of tell the, tell the story. You know, if you, if you think back to 2003, you were sort of on the heels of the dot-com implosion. My career prior to that was in consulting, consulting to predominantly the telecommunications industry. In 2003, that was not a great industry to be in. Also at that time, 2003, you were sort of very much the aftermath of 9-11 was still very raw. And there was really, you know, a big sense uh, of service and sort of duty to country that certainly resonated with me at that point in time. And, and thirdly, sort of from a personal perspective, I had small children. While I had never really considered a career in government, there were, you know, sort of those three things sort of came together. And I said, let's give government a chance. And I got involved with network transformation over at the Department of Justice. And it, it really has been a run of just incredible opportunities, both at Justice and at Treasury, that has kind of led to, to this point. But at Justice, I spent the first you know, few years involved with the network transformation and then was appointed to senior executive service after three or four years. And so in addition to sort of enterprise networks, I got involved with law enforcement information sharing and e-government. And so that's kind of where that, you know, e-government title, which was a very interesting portfolio, you know, if you sort of think about it. But what all of those sort of elements of the job gave me is a very broad view of the Department of Justice and government and just sort of an amazing sort of set of things to do. Um, ultimately, that role led to an opportunity to act as the, as the CIO over the Department of Justice for about a year or so after what I believe to be the longest serving agency CIO left, and that would be Van Hitch. And then I ultimately stayed on. I didn't get that job at Department of Justice, but stayed on for a number of years, but basically continuing in the work of being a change agent around implementing shared services in particular, sort of in the, in the infrastructure area, ultimately got very involved with tactical law enforcement, wireless communications over at Justice, which was, which was very interesting. That agency has a very agent-based culture, at least certain components over there do, and that was, that was fascinating. But, you know, it's hard to go back after having served as CIO Started to kind of go back into the box of a deputy CIO, sort of looking at other opportunities and other departments that had a mission that resonated with me. And one of those was, was Treasury. So in 2015, I came over to Treasury as a deputy CIO and served in that capacity for a couple of years. There are a lot of interesting overlaps, I think, between Justice and Treasury, similar cultures in a lot of respects, um, similar uh, mission elements that overlap in particular around, um, uh, let's say, intelligence and uh, focus on, you know, on, on terrorism and things of that nature. And then uh, had the opportunity to serve as the, as the Treasury CIO, really putting 
to work along at this point, uh, you know, run of looking at uh, the enterprise, looking at shared services, looking at governance, looking at modernization, all these themes were sort of recurring sort of throughout my career, you know, even going back to the early justice days. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Interesting. Yeah. I remember uh, when Van Hitch left, I think he was there nine years, which is an incredibly long time. And, and he, it is. You know, I only knew him kind of from the outside in versus the inside out. And he was always very calm, very, the demeanor was just like, we'll, we'll do the best we can. We'll get it done. We'll move forward. Right. I always, always appreciate yeah. the fact that he was always very, at least the, the, he was never an exciting person, excitable person, I should say. I'm sure he was an exciting person. So, uh, <laughs> Dicker Kate Van's uh, excitement. <laughs> so, you came over to Treasury, and that's where I want to spend maybe a lot of our conversation today, because one of the things about Treasury is is you, as, as a, someone from uh, the CIO, was not one of those folks who spoke very often or, or often at all. So, so, I think there's a lot of progress Treasury's made, but but maybe we maybe a lot of the community doesn't know a lot about it. So technology is a lot different today than it was back in 2017. It's a lot different today than it was back in 2003 when you started. Just give me a sense of how Treasury specifically is different today than it was when you started, again, CIO about four years ago or so. I think one of the things Treasury sort of struggled with at the time that I I got involved is uh, I think we had a fair amount of technical debt. And I spent a lot of time, particularly early on, in focusing on uh, paying down that that technical debt, at least in certain areas of uh, of the department. I also think we were probably underserved in certain areas from a mobility capabilities perspective, and so we spent a lot of time kind of getting everybody current on on mobile services. Beyond that, at the time that I started with Treasury. I, the orientation was more towards sort of an on-prem data center consolidation uh, initiative or focus. And that's really moved to a multi-cloud approach now. So that's, of course, very different. Um, I think there was much more of an emphasis on bespoke development practices and, and waterfall development practices. As, as opposed to today, there's much more of an orientation around agile and low-code platforms. And, uh, you know, I think we're not alone in this respect by any means, Treasury. Um, but from a cyber perspective, looking at things much more from a risk management perspective and a compliance perspective, those would be some of the sort of top-line sort of sea change type things that have occurred maybe over the past, you know, five or so years. All right, Eric, lot to dig out there. I have plenty of follow-ups, but first let's take a quick break and then come back and we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former CIO at the Treasury Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former CIO at the Treasury Department. Now, Eric, before break, you give us kind of a listing of all the things that are maybe different today than in 2017 when you came to Treasury as, as the CIO and you became CIO. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to walk us through maybe some of those changes a little more specific. So the first one you mentioned was when you, got, when you became CIO, there was a fair amount of technical debt, and you've spent a lot of time focusing on paying down that debt. 
help me understand what that meant. Did you, you know, the O&M versus the DME, you, I'm sure you remember those, uh, all that conversation. Is, is that the biggest change? Or you, when you talk about technical debt, you just had old systems that needed to be modernized. I think probably the, the easiest way to understand this is just to, to start with sort of the end user here, you know, the treasury employer, contractor, what have you. Had a lot of old laptops out there. You had older mobile devices, things of that nature. I think the focus was was very much on the end user and very much on on getting you know those pieces of technology the end user is touching current. Beyond that, it was also about having each of the bureaus sort of take a look at their own infrastructures and identify what what's old out there and uh, what's what's sort of your plan to uh, to get it current. You know, my role from a department level is really to support, to be the voice and, and to support the funding of that and to campaign for the funding of that and, and identify it as a priority. And that's really the way, you know, we got that one taken care of. When you talk about kind of the older equipment and maybe some of the infrastructure, were you at Treasury and some of the bureaus still relying on laptops that were, you know, the bricks, if you remember from those days, or they just were four, five, six years old and they needed a refresh. It's the same thing with mobile phones. It was everyone still on the Blackberry and you, you opened the, helped open the door for iPhones and Android devices? Yes, all of the above, so to speak. Uh, that absolutely on target. You know, you go to sort of have a distribution of age ranges on all, the, all that, all those devices. But, you know, if the u- end user is frustrated and doesn't feel good about their experience, then it's hard to make a case that you need to focus on some of these maybe more abstract or or far-reaching kind of mission capabilities that we know we need, but you've got to have that strong foundation first, and is, is my belief. And it's also about getting those quick wins as a CIO, as you well know, as you walk in and you see, okay, everyone's on Blackberry still, as an example, and, and there's nothing wrong with Blackberries, but as the rest of the world is moving to smartphones like iPhones and Android Correct. phones, it's, it's an easy win to, to get people off. Is, is that kind of what your plan was initially? Yeah, I think it's the quick wins. It's also to, and I guess really what that's about, the quick win is establishing credibility and picking out the priorities. I think, you know, one of the challenges that a CIO, whether it's an agency level CIO or a bureau component CIO is, you know, there are so many potential things that you could work on and you're not going to get to work on all of them. And so for really picking out the priorities, the ones that are going to, you know, really move, move the dial. And that was certainly an easy one to identify. And then if you do well with those kind of things, you start to build confidence, I think all the way around and, um, it sets a good foundation to then begin pursuing, you know, some of the more far-reaching mission kind of capabilities that require greater investment, take longer to accomplish. But yes, you're absolutely right. And from a technical debt, I remember Tony Scott, the former federal CIO, was quoted often back in 2015, 2016 timeframe as saying the government had $7 billion in technical debt. And I think that was uh, as much as an estimate as anything else. Did you have that same estimate when you got there? Not of $7 billion, of course, but did you have that same estimate? And did you feel like by the time you left, that technical debt had shrunk? It definitely shrunk. I don't know that, you know, Kennedy ever tried to quantify it from a dollar perspective. You know, the way we sort of quantified it was 
looking across you know, the end user population and for example the age of the laptop or the desktop that they had or the the type or age of, of the mobile device they were on th those kinds of things i think this discussion of technical debt can get can get a bit tricky in that there is this presumption that old equals bad and i think it's more nuanced than that i spent a lot of time comparing notes with a lot of uh private sector cios talking about technical debt and you still have you know name brand insurance and financial services companies that are running big COBOL implementations on mainframes and there's good reason for that. If you sit down and talk to them about their rationale for doing that, there's good reason for doing that. So it's a much more nuanced discussion. It'd be almost impossible, I think, to assign a dollar figure to it in that respect. I think the other piece of that is your, your users, your end users, the, the people who work at Treasury, see the difference, see that they have equipment that's more modern and updated and things are working better. Right. And I think that's, that's really the measure too of, of technical debt these days is how the people feel about the, 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 the technology they're using, which leads us down the path. We, we talked a little bit that we combine the technical debt with the mobility discussion. I imagine the mobility services came in handy over the last year and a half during the pandemic. Let's just maybe touch upon that briefly. Was treasury a place where a lot of people teleworked and, and if not, how did that culture change happen during the last 18 months as, as the pandemic, you know, in March, 2020 and beyond as, as agencies move to close to hundred percent telework. Obviously here, as I talk about treasury, just keeping in mind, you know, we have, let's call it 10 very large bureaus. They have, you know, very different cultures, very different sizes. So this is somewhat of a generalization I'll say, but you know, by and large, treasury had a bias towards, you know, working on prem, as opposed to teleworking, though there were clearly elements within Treasury that had a, a higher telework concentration. But you know, in March of uh, 2020, I felt like a, a, a light switch was turned on or off, depending on how you want to look at it in terms of the you know complete movement from a bias to uh, of on-prem to maximum telework and and what that meant so obviously having a better story around end user mobility and what have you played into that but mobility was sort of prior to you know the pandemic taking off was looked at through the lens of flexibility for situational telework the snow day you know these kinds of things so in a lot of respects the or the capacity you know, the orientation around it was on, you know, a far smaller footprint. And on that day, we flipped the switch. And I think that is something we still need to, you know, as a government, still need to sort through. There's a lot of discussion about a future of work, and we know we're going to be a hybrid environment. But right now, in a lot of ways, we're sort of in a suboptimal kind of situation in that we really haven't committed, you know, one way or another. And I think we have to otherwise, you know, we're sort of maintaining resources for one 
uh, let's say one orientation at the expense of another, but absolutely focusing on the end user uh, and getting them current made it possible to essentially go to maximum telework and what amounted to, you know, just a, a couple days or a couple weeks. If you would walk me through a little bit about some of the changes you had to make, some of the steps you took to get to that 100% telework amount over weeks. I mean, we've heard a lot of stories from a lot of different agencies about risk-based decisions about access to applications that, and whether or not you can move them to the cloud to get easier access. Did you, I imagine you went through all those similar challenges. I think so. The interesting thing is pre-pandemic, I would say the treasury culture was by and large when we were remote we were on a conference call, an audio conference call, and not on a video conference call. Not, not exclusively on audio conference calls, but the, the culture is predominantly audio conference calls. So as we got along in the, in the pandemic, that changed. And there was a lot more of an emphasis on the audio aspects of it. So, you know, you can kind of think through, well, what you start doing audio, what does that, you know, what does that mean? Um, but to your point, a lot of it had to do with increasing capacity in remote access platforms and VPNs and things like that. A lot of it had to do with improving the end user experience as they are working from home because most of the infrastructure was oriented towards, you know, supporting a user population in a treasury office building per se, but those are the kinds of things uh, that were done. And obviously, you know, we didn't build necessarily this stuff ourselves, but looked to, you know, cloud-based service providers to fill in those gaps. And I think, you know, one of the very interesting dynamics is, you know, seemingly whichever vendor we picked, there was a strong camp that wanted another vendor because they thought it was easier or better to use. But these are the kinds of things we sort of work through over time. All right, Eric, you brought up cloud. That's the next place we're going to go. But first, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former Treasury Department Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former Treasury Department Chief Information Officer. Now, Eric, before break, we're, you just mentioned the word cloud, and, and you had said it earlier as well because you said one of the things that changed at Treasury over the last four or five years since you became CIO was the really moving from on-prem to the cloud. So let's jump down. Let's go down that road for a little bit and, and help me understand how you have brought in cloud services, how, how, how is Treasury using cloud services right. today, and, and what kind of consolidation have you uh, were able to achieve through data centers? The starting point here, maybe the baseline situation we sort of had, you know, obviously there's been a very strong emphasis on data center optimization in the federal government really over the past 10 or 15 years, and cloud kind of grew up alongside of that. and where Treasury was, let's say, you know, five to seven years ago was more about consolidating into its own data centers. And we continue to do that and have done well with, with that. But as opportunity sort of presents itself, I think 
the the better solution is you know not to put things in your own data center but to look look at the cloud and we were one of the first agencies to get into the cloud and and during my tenure one of the first agencies to get into the cloud the Visma High cloud and so what it looked like with the migration or the you know the movement looked like to us as we moved some of our enterprise shared service or these common business function systems into cloud services. So talent management system that we deployed to the entire treasury department uh, was cloud-based. We moved our HRIT, our human resources platform into the cloud. Basically, you know, the way of, the way of we were looking at this is for any given application, there's sort of a maybe a rationalized uh, decision-making path is can we, if we can buy it as a service, we'd like to do that. If we can't buy it as a service, can we, can we configure it or develop it on a low code platform? And then if, if that's not the case, then we look to bespoke development and can we then do that development and in, in the, the run of that system in a cloud-based infrastructure? So, those common business functions were a big focus. We had a very big focus on low-code platforms, which are sort of cloud-based by nature, and did a lot of work in terms of rationalizing the legacy application portfolio and looking at applying, whether it be low-code platforms or software as a service to retiring, you know, those legacy applications or migrating them those are probably two of the biggest areas I, I would look at. But you do sort of, you are sort of left with this, I'll call it sort of generalized compute requirement, you know, where you have a need for compute capacity and storage capacity. And you've seen sort of our thinking on this come out in terms of T-Cloud and, you know, the RFI that was recently released. but you know, basically the thinking there was, we've done this in the network space with TNet, which is wanted to acquire a, you know, a third party sort of managed service that would provide uh, network. We're looking at TNet or TCloud, excuse me, as an analogy to sort of TNet. Eric, let me jump in real quick on that because you mentioned uh, the low code, the SaaS. I, I also remember seeing a request for information that Treasury put out recently for some cloud services. Is, is that where you're heading to? Is that what that RFI is kind of trying to address is, is the broader, the bigger move toward this SaaS and or low code, no code approach? Yeah. It, so the, the thinking here is even after we've looked at SaaS solutions and, and low code platforms, uh, there's still a need for and a pretty, pretty substantial need for, I'll say, sort of a, a generalized compute storage, you know, infrastructure capability. So that's really what T-Cloud is about. It's analogous to our, our sort of way of thinking about network and TNet and that we acquired a managed service provider to handle most of our sort of the, the 80% solution for network. We want sort of that service provider in the infrastructure and cloud space that could man provide that 60 to 80% requirement for sort of this generalized compute and storage capability. 
there's always going to be certain workloads that we're not going to be able to, you know, put in the cloud, whether for performance or security reasons. But that's really what T Cloud is about. And you know, the RFI is about engaging with industry and getting feedback on our approach and 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 trying to uh, to put that put that capability in place. And it seems to me, without going too far into the procurement side of it, what you're looking for, is, is it considered a cloud broker or is it more, you mentioned managed service provider, is somebody to kind of help you make the decisions of which workload goes in which cloud or stays on premise, or is it something more than that? The focus of it was not so much on the managed side and maybe I improperly or shouldn't have sort of made that comparison. I think you know, that would be something that Treasury would look at down the road in terms of someone, you know, providing sort of the management layer on top of that. But we're looking for that kind of more basic cloud infrastructure, compute and storage capability that sort of provides that, you know, instead of us leasing or buying converged infrastructure, what have you, and sticking in our data centers, we're looking at cloud service providers to, to, to do that. Generally speaking, and again, hard to always hard to maybe put percentages on it. But where would you say you are in your cloud journey? It'd be hard to quantify it, but there's a, there is a lot of opportunity on the table for cloud, a lot. Um, it's always harder because there are certain pieces in the cloud, and there's always that hybrid world. I imagine, as I hear from a lot of CIOs, they will be living in the hybrid world for the for the near term for sure. The low code, no code piece kind of helps fall fit into the the discussion on agile. And, and if you guys are down the if you guys were down the path of DevSecOps, which we hear a lot about, for the most part, are you getting capabilities to the users? And, and again, we'll tag also back to the beginning of our conversation more quickly. Do you feel like that was an area where Treasury was able to take advantage of, or is again is that something that's again you're setting you building some foundations, and and maybe that's coming in another year or so? We've really been able to uh, get a lot of benefit out of the low code platform. So a few years ago. We were looking at it more in terms of we don't have a lot of this activity going on. We want to make an investment, develop the competency around it. So we acquired some funding to sort of get started, pursue some pilots, you know, things of that nature. But the thing was, this was going to be big, but this is pre-pandemic. The pandemic comes along and, you know, Treasury is very much in the middle of the, the pandemic response. and we were very much in the center of, let's say, the CARES Act and the ARP um, with Treasury needing to distribute funds you know, to various constituencies. And those low-code capabilities and platforms played a critical role in us being able to in some cases within days or just a small number of weeks develop applications so we could you know take the applications from these various groups and i just can't underemphasize the importance that those low code platforms played in us being able to to turn around those capabilities so quickly so that one is gone from you know, kind of a, a pilot concept to full on, you know, we're, we're into it, into it deep and it's only validated, you know, what we thought was going to be the, the benefit there. That's a great success story that, again, I, I think we don't hear enough about how agencies were able to 
not just pivot during the pandemic, but also on top of it, add the CARES Act and all the, the pieces in the American Rescue Plan Act and all that, that, that the money came to them and they had to get it out the door. So um, again, thanks thanks for sharing that because I think it's a, it's a good uh, success story that we don't hear enough about. Eric, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former CIO at the Treasury Department. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Eric Olson, the former CIO at the Treasury Department. Eric, we talked a lot about the progress you've made in, in, in really reducing the technical debt that Treasury faced over the last you know, four or five years. We've talked about cloud. We've talked about mobility. We've talked about a, a host of different things, low code, no code as an example. The one other piece that I think you didn't really mention as part of, of your role, but but I think is we would be missing out on if we didn't talk a little bit about it is FTAR, the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act. Uh, I hear from a lot of CIOs, uh, they, they love to hate it or hate to love it or, or something to that effect. But without a doubt, you know, as I've talked to CIOs over the years, it's had a real impact and a positive impact. And Treasury has been one of those places where you've seen a, a pretty big positive impact. Help me understand how you have used FTAR to really change the culture, change the progress of Treasury when it comes to IT modernization? We have made a lot of progress in FITAR in, in particular. I, I think one way you could look at it, or maybe the easiest way to under, understand it is, of course, that scorecard that comes out, you know, twice a year. So, you know, we've moved our grade from was essentially like a D minus five years or so back to a, a B. And <laughs> I'll just say, Treasury being a very highly federated agency, almost feel like graded on a curve that B should be an A because it's there's a lot of challenges there. But I think we have made a lot of progress. You know, I think one of the things I would talk about here is that Vitara, as much attention as it's received, is is still not a it's not a silver bullet, and um, there's a lot of room for I think revisiting it, revising it. But the spirit of what Fatara is trying to do is absolutely is absolutely spot on. Um, within the Treasury Department, one of the things I really tried to do was to to take Fatara and turn it into a set of of guiding principles for governance across you know, the treasury enterprise space, you know, recalling that treasury is comprised of, you know, 10 or so separate bureaus, some very large ones, and, you know, 10 or so different policy and management offices, all these folks have, you know, to varying degrees, CIOs and IT budgets and IT staff and what have you. And the question is, how do you manage with Fatara as the driver, but how do you manage that on a, you know, on a, a day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis, and we spent a lot of time authoring and then collaborating with the bureau CIOs to kind of get that set of guiding principles and say this is what FATARA means to to the Treasury Department. So I think that has helped us improve our grade. The grade isn't the whole story, I think, and that maybe comes to you know my view that there's some some opportunity for further. Uh, improvement on, on some of the Fatara elements, but it is something we are proud of and spent a lot of time trying to uh, to meet the spirit of what Fatara is all about. All right, Eric, you opened the door, so I'm just going to walk through it, okay? What would be some of those sure. elements you'd like to see improved on Fatara? 
you know, I talked about the scorecard and, you know, so I'm happy about our grade, but I don't necessarily love the scorecard metrics. You know, there has been certainly not the first person to, uh, to talk about this. There's a lot of discussion about how these various metrics are, are created. And I know the CAO council made some recommendations, you know, on this, maybe beyond the scope of the discussion of this particular time to go through the details, but, you know, some of them are more spot on than others. And um, I think the other element of the scorecard is, you know, my view, sort of the analogous in the corporate world would be a boardroom uh, balanced scorecard. And it's that balanced piece maybe that I'd like to see more of. So, you know, the scorecard is very much about the business of IT, cybersecurity and data centers and, you know, all of this sort of technical stuff. But there's a, there's a mission enablement, mission impact piece of IT that creates the balance in all of this. And uh, so, you know, that might be one element to sort of highlight as more of a balanced scorecard and to look at it more of a, as a boardroom kind of review of how effective and efficient is IT being in the enterprise would be sort of the frame that I would look at making improvements around. I know there's been some discussion, even at the last Fatari hearing, about some of the changes that some members of Congress like to see as well. So interesting feedback. I think it's something that, that is, is going to bubble up consistently over time. And it actually that leads us down a good path to, to ask the broader question. As a CIO, you've been involved in, in the CIO world for, for 18 years of your federal career. What kind of advice would you give to other people who are looking either to be CIOs or who are maybe new CIOs? And, and then we, we'll go down the path of maybe some of the other things about being a CIO that was both good and frustrating. You know, so this is just one man's opinion, right? Um, I think advice for folks wanting to be a CIO or sitting CIOs, I, I think identifying and then focusing on what those essentials and priorities are, you really can't do everything as much as maybe, you know, a lot of folks wish, wish we, we could do all of these things, but you know, you've, got to kind of pick out the things that are important and that that is a uh, that is in a lot of ways more of an art art than a science but to, to really focus on those essentials and try to resist the shiny objects that are oftentimes within the site of of cios um that'd be one thing i the other thing i might say is there's so much opportunity within the federal space technology space to make progress just using very proven practices without needing to be on the bleeding edge on a lot of this stuff. So I think the benchmarking and comparing, you know, ourselves to each other and learning from each other and looking at the corporate world for their best practices, right? Maybe other nonprofit segments, there's so much to be, you know, leveraged from what other folks have, have done. I would say, you know, we, another point here is, you know, we're going to face this workforce issue around attracting and retaining qualified talent in the federal space. That, that, that's, that's not going to go away. And we're going to have to really get very creative about how we do that and how we look at the sort of the, the totality of the federal technology workforce, whether they be 
federal employees or contractors or, you know, sort of corporate employees that manifest them, you know, their labor manifests to us, to us through a shared service or through some other, you know, cloud service. I think we have to look very creatively at, at managing the workforce because it's only going to get going to get harder. But, you know, those are some of the real, I think, big challenges. And then if I were to talk specifically about, you know, an agency CIO role, I think the thing I would say here is the Fitara, back to my comment, is not the silver bullet. At the end of the day, these agency jobs in most agencies, and I, I think I can say this with some some level of confidence having talked to, to many of my peers, you know, it's about leading a governance function and leading a, a federation. Uh, you know, no matter what the titles are and the reporting relationships are, it's about a well-conceived and well-executing governance function and how you make decisions to do things together as a department and where you decide to do things separately as individual, you know, bureaus or components. That is supremely important. Um, and that I, I think is probably the thing that if you can master you will be the thing that leads most to your success. It goes back to not understanding all the bits and the bites, though that's important. It really does go back to the relationships you build and how you manage those relationships and, and the folks that are, we're just about out of time, but before I let you go, I always love to ask this question. If, if you could wave a magic wand <laughs> and change one or two things about federal IT, what, what would you change first? There's sort of been a movement for certain departments and agencies to offer pay differentials. I actually think that is sort of a zero sum game in a lot of respects. And, you know, it's sort of like either we pay pay across the board, let's say for cyber folks, but we don't help ourselves when one agency gets to pay more than another. So that'd be one. I think the other thing I would, would sort of say is I've seen a little bit of a tendency for the government sometimes to get into this role of being a, a shared service provider. And I think we have to be really careful when the government sort of steps in and decides to build and run a shared service and make sure it's very well rationalized. There isn't a you know robust sort of uh, commercial market for it. Those would be my sort of two top of mind wishes, uh, so to speak. Eric, unfortunately, we are out of time for today, but I've really uh, very much enjoyed our conversation. Let me thank my guest. Eric Olson is the former CIO at the Treasury Department. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. And of course, thank you for, the, for your service to the country. Thanks, Jason. It's been great talking with you. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.